Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 39, talking microcosm, macrocosm, and the beauty of science with herbalist Guido Masse. In this episode, we speak with Guido about what consciousness is and will, the importance of phytochemical diversity, wild plant deficiency syndrome, the beauty of science, and how herbalism helps him unite his love of science and his love of spirit. We see how the microcosm and the macrocosm are linked. And we talk about dancing with darkness. As usual, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash plantcunning. You can rate and review us on iTunes. You can share with your friends. And you can enjoy the episode. So, I hope you do. Well, welcome Guido Masse to the Plant Cunning Podcast. For those of you who don't know, Guido is an herbalist, author, educator, and all-around interesting fellow. So how are you today, Guido? Isaac, I am great. Thank you. And um, thanks to you and AC for inviting me here. Absolutely. It's yeah. a real honor to have you. Yeah, this is, I'm really excited for this conversation. So we do have a traditional first question on the podcast, and it is, how did you come to the plant path? Yeah. And, you know, I think that the answer to that question has crystallized a little bit for me over the years, but I also sort of remember this one episode pretty clearly in my mind. Um, now, in retrospect, this sort of call was certainly building over the course of my teenage years, especially once my family sort of more or less permanently relocated to the States. We'd spent a lot of time growing up in Italy, or I had spent a lot of time growing up in Italy. Um, and so when I moved back to the States as like 14, 13, 14, semi-permanently, um, it took me a while to realize that maybe some of the rituals and um, daily plant connection experiences that were kind of part of the culture in Italy were missing. And it, it really didn't hit me over the head right away. But this other struggle that I was trying to work with through my teenage years, which was this fascination with both what one might call the hard sciences, though I'm not super fond of that term, um, this idea of like, physics and chemistry, and even to a certain extent, biochemistry, mm. um, compared or contrasted with what one might call mythology and folklore and fairy tale and more spiritual disciplines, they were sort of pushing and pulling inside of me in, in ways that weren't totally clear for, you know, the 15, 16, 17 year old. But one moment of clarity for me actually happened up in a tree, a particular beech tree that I remember to this day. And, you know, friends of mine at the time will remember as well. And sitting up there in the high branches where we'd often go and, you know, it's night and the stars are really bright and you can see them through the top leaves of the canopy. This sort of feeling of being held and, and feeling of my life being part of something larger that would end up working itself out and any knots that I might feel would be untangled 
that feeling came at the same time of this moment of synthesis between spirituality and folklore and mysticism and the hard science piece. And to me, it came together in the form of herbalism. And it was a, a sort of aha moment because it also brought word to this unspecified feeling of something missing that I had experienced since kind of relocating to the States. And so it was like, wow, you were walking and collecting plants as a kid. You haven't been doing that for a while. Everything that the plants hold and, and the mushrooms you harvested hold also contain really important biochemical elements, really important pieces of the sort of chemistry science that you're fascinated with. And of course, they're connected to magical fairy spirits and gnomes of sort of Italian folk magic. And, and when this all kind of came together for me, that's when I kind of said, wow, I either will be able to find this at this university that I'm at, or as it turned out, I couldn't and had to sort of leave that path and um, travel around and try and find my own plant way um, in the early 90s, um, late 80s, early 90s. But everything has changed and evolved since then in incredible ways that I could have never predicted. But that moment of synthesis was both so inspiring for me and also such an incredible relief that it sticks with me to this day. Cool. That's so interesting. Seems like from way back then, you know, having this synthesis, which seems from my perspective, what you're known for now, like deeply into science and deeply into, into the, the mythic side of things too. Uh, it's, 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 it's really wonderful. I like have an experience like that too, at, at a young age. Yeah, I definitely feel lucky and, and privileged to have been able to have the sort of space in my life to hear that and then act on it. And I think that I've tried to, with certain degrees of success, keep that as sort of part of the, the guiding light for the sort of random walk that we all do from the moment we're born to the moment we move on. Mm -hmm. It seems like direction is such an important part of life for any human you know, and having a, a kind of a sense of an inner direction is just so crucial uh purpose yeah yeah well right everybody talks about that it's like find your purpose and then do it and it's not an easy thing to do right. and, and i i have to admit that i don't know or or at any time really have that fully crystallized it's it's still an evolving thing but one piece of it that I think is really important for me and, and ends up coming back over and over again is sort of this idea of purpose and meaning, which I think are connected, right? If, if we feel like we're moving in a direction towards a purpose, as you all said, then, then there's a sort of meaning to our movement that feels more special or more relevant um, than if there were no meaning or, or if things felt meaningless and empty. And to a certain extent, we're all trying to correct that a little bit. And this influx of meaning and purpose, I think is a big part of what health and wellness is about as a human. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know that it can all be found internally in the sense that this sense of purpose and direction and meaning and being held. I mean, I credit that tree as much as my own self to have helped me find that or helped me steer in that direction. And still to this day, I would say every day, I feel like my purpose and will, and therefore the meaning that comes into my life 
are in part outside of my control. And to a certain extent, I willingly turn that measure of control over to the world of plants and mushrooms. And that may seem a little strange. I don't know if you all exactly understand what I'm talking about, but I think it relates a little bit to the fact that we're really not as in charge of our lives as we might think we are. And if that's the case, and if we're sort of embedded in these big living systems, then I choose to turn over my control to a certain extent to plants and mushrooms and the bacteria that live all around us rather than to, I don't know, all of the tools of modern technology or, you know, screen time or things like that. Um, yeah. We absolutely understand what you're saying here. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it, when you get into things like, you know, free will, fate, what will is, you know, what decision-making processes are, it's, you know, really complicated where like there have been studies that have shown, you know, a, a the, the electrical impulse to, to, to move the hand happens before the thought happens. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Which leads some of the hard materialists to say, well, consciousness is simply an illusion and the idea <laughs> that you have free will doesn't exist right because look your your brain is doing it before you're even aware so the the action and the impulse exists before the thought or the consciousness and you know that that's fine i get what folks are saying but um who's aware try, of the hand <laughs> right and 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 to try and localize and only measure what's going on in terms of of the brain and neural impulses misses a little bit of the complexity and interrelated nature, not only of the human physiology, where, you know, our understanding of, of what's called interoception or, or our internal perception of what our organs are up to, which we think is relayed a lot by the vagus nerve, like that stuff is, is working at a very deep level at controlling our actions and behaviors in a way that, that we're completely not conscious of until you get enough sort of collective aggregation of neural impulses to qualify as a quote thought. Now that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, as folks from Freud onward, you know, take it or leave it with Freud have always said, it doesn't mean that your impulses and your will aren't governed by things that you may not fully be consciously aware of. Right. And so, in that sense, you can open the conversation up to everything from sort of cultural streams of thinking that exist inside us that we're trying to figure out or untangle, but that nevertheless control our behavior in ways that we don't understand, right? Um, and onto chemical streams of information that might be coming from the natural world and we're putting into our bodies or experiencing with our senses. What are they doing to our consciousness and to our will? So ultimately, as, as I, I get deeper into consciousness studies and, and the points you brought up, Isaac, about free will and um, awareness and consciousness, I have to come to the conclusion that we certainly do have a measure of free will, but it's not an either or thing, right? It's not like the hard materialists were say that it's completely non-existent and totally an illusion. And at the same time, we are not completely in control or completely in charge of our will and our behavior and our actions it's sort of fuzzy, it's gray. And I believe this is because we're embedded in bigger consciousness cycles and in bigger life processes of which we are a part, 
just like a neuron is a part of our brain and in which we have a certain measure of agency, right? But at the same time, we also are bound to them in ways that control us. And we may not fully understand all of those ways, right? And, and this goes back to simple things like the food we eat. It, the idea that it's just calories in, calories out, and that the complexity of things like phytochemistry in our food are irrelevant because they're not proteins, fats, or carbs, that's a, a very simplistic understanding. And, and modern science is, is fortunately turning the page on that, where we're realizing food has incredible information value, alters our behavior, alters the behavior of our gut flora, which alters our behavior and our mood. And once you start really seeing the world this way, kind of like when I was in that tree, like you lose your edges, you feel totally held, and at the same time you feel agency. Um, so I like to summarize it as saying, yeah, our, our will isn't completely fixed, um, or our will isn't completely free, but at the same time our fate isn't completely fixed either. And we co-create the world even though we don't have a ton of influence, and at the same time are created and evolved by just being a part of it. And, and crucially, y'all, like as an herbalist, the communion with the world by the ingestion of plants and mushrooms opens this incredible channel to that relational consciousness of these larger organisms in which we're embedded. And so that's the reason that I'm an herbalist, really. It's to keep that connection open and that flow open for myself and hopefully be able to turn other folks onto that. Um, and, and thereby, we hope, move the culture to a place where it's more interconnected, more willing to work with wild diversity and more cognizant of how precious that wild diversity is for resilience and sustainability. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful vision and, a, and way of seeing it. And it really, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, there's this esoteric teaching where will is not something that you have, but something that you develop. <laughs> um, and also this phrase to me comes to mind of, you know, thy will be done is like the opposite of, you know, do, yeah. do what thou wilt, but also when any, when, when you start meditating and like really paying attention to your thoughts, um, you, you start seeing these subtle thoughts that are like below the level of what you used to think of as conscious thoughts. And you can kind of see those pop up from these even more subtle mm, thought proto thoughts. And so what you're saying is that it's the same thing with, with your body and with the, the, what, what you ingest. And, and I, I think I can see that experientially too in myself with the, the plants that I ingest. So I eat a lot of wild foods and I've been doing that for a long time. And yeah. you can kind of tell not just like energy levels, but these really kind of subtle things going on. Like you're ingesting the DNA of another entity and if you only have you know if you only eat like cruciferous vegetables and corn you know that's not a lot of dna <laughs> mm -hmm. no and it's not a lot of phytochemical diversity either compared to what our evolutionary adaptive ranges are right what we right. grew up in what our body is used to seeing what the information context has been you know so imagine being used to to having access to a certain library and then all of a sudden you're restricted to two books 
um, in terms of being able to find meaning and find inspiration in your life, it, it gets harder, right? Um, and also it's easier to knock you off balance. So eating a wide variety of wild foods, that's like foundational stuff. And, you know, just, just to give you a very simple example, if you think about plant chemistry, some of the molecules we get fascinated with or, or we think are quite important are these polyphenols, right? Um, people talk about them being antioxidants. I just want to set that aside completely. Um, I hate that term mostly because it sets up this sort of fight between the free radicals and the antioxidants. And it's really not about that. It's about this information that these polyphenols provide to our gene expression. And if you think even before eating a hawthorn berry, you think about what it looks like and you think about how those polyphenols shift the type of light they reflect based on how sour the berry is, moving from reflecting green and yellow light to reflecting red and purple light as the sourness decreases, as the berry ripens, you can see that these polyphenols are an immediate signal to me as an herbalist harvesting those berries or to a bird who might come around to try and eat them. We're gonna harvest them when they're red. And at the same time, we're gonna get a good nutritious non-sour berry to put into our mouths and feed us and we'll be disseminating the hawthorn seed when it's ripe and it's ready to make new trees. So immediately that you can see how plants provide signals to us to keep the dance of life connected and functional. Plants need animals as much as animals need plants in this day and age. But if you take it further, then those polyphenols in our body end up having similar signaling effects to the gene expression of every single cell in our bodies. And this is really why they're important. They change the way our blood vessels um, protect themselves, increasing the sort of fluffiness and thickness of this protective sort of magnetically repulsive layer that lines our blood vessels that keeps things from getting into the lining of the blood vessels and, and creating things like atherosclerotic plaques. Um, they also affect our cells longevity switches, um, all of the supportive enzymes that um, are brought to bear when a cell is trying to handle sort of a precancerous state. Um, and that's really the, I think, value and richness of these polyphenols when we get them into our body. And, and as you see with not only those types of constituents, but also with things like bitter constituents from plants, a lot of the stuff that comes up in the sort of modern clinical context for humans is as much about plant deficiency as it is about, you know, the screens and the sugar and all of the other stuff that modern life throws at our physiology, which we probably can adapt to okay, if it weren't for at the same time, this dramatic decrease in phytonutrient density and in the sort of important signal that keeps us tethered and connected to these larger cycles of life in which we are embedded. So are you describing wild plant deficiency syndrome with uh going from a whole library to two books and, you know, not having all of these various plants in our, in our average diets. Yeah. You know, um, I think it was herbalist James Green who first coined the term bitter deficiency syndrome to talk specifically about what the absence of the bitter flavor does to our metabolism and to our digestion, but it definitely can be, can be broadened to wild plant deficiency syndrome or, you know, include those mushrooms in there too, include um, the hygiene hypothesis and sort of immune challenge um, and exposure to different 
types of bacteria um, and types of viruses as we're growing up. All of that sort of diversity of experience is important in molding and crafting you. And as you said earlier, in molding and crafting your will and your direction and your purpose. And um, authors like Richard Louvre talk about nature deficit disorder as now a sort of documented, almost pathology that you can see in children, certainly exacerbated a little bit by the increase in screen utilization during you know, remote learning and everything that has happened during the last 18 months um, with COVID-related lockdowns. But take it a step further. It's not just about being outside, as magical and important as that is, as experiencing nature with our senses. It's also about bringing nature inside so that this stream of phytopharmacology from the natural world literally can commune with everything inside us that is ready and waiting for all of that. Ready and waiting. Why? Not some magical accident, but simply because we are part of the same broader organism. We evolved together. And if you think of plant chemistry as sort of hormones keeping everything in balance there, you can start to see a little bit about how important it is and how it might be likely that a species like the human species would get out of balance by cutting itself off from these hormone signals coming from the larger organism in which the species is embedded. So we're able to sort of run roughshod over the environment, treat each other with a lack of respect, um, treat everything with a lack of respect, in part because we are not allowing our individual wills to be sort of subsumed a little bit at least by the signals and the information and the loving support that nature around us is always trying to provide. And so herbalists are sort of matchmakers that way and, and we can help get those hormones flowing again into the species, right? Um, and, and that's why I think herbalism is unique because it takes all of these concepts of sort of distributed will and the importance of sort of collective consciousness versus individual consciousness. And it takes it from a, um, let's say intellectual realm into one that is very practical and tangible with stuff you put into your mouth, uh, a literal communion. Um, that's what I think that makes herbalism truly different from disciplines like philosophy or um, religious or spiritual practices, right? Although many religious and spiritual practices incorporate um, things like herbal communion as, as part of their teachings, I think for very good reason. Absolutely. Do you think that the, in your experience as an herbalist over the last, how many years have you been doing it? 20, 30 years? Well, I mean, I started um, my own studies in formally, formally, like maybe in the 1990 or so. Um, I would say we incorporated the Sage Mountain Freeherbal Clinic in 2001 here in Vermont. So I'd say clinical practice, 20 years, um, enthusiastic herbalist, 30 years. Um, <laughs> kid with love of plants pretty much all his life. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So in your experience over, you know, your life, have you noticed um, the Western medical, like mainstream doctors and nurses start to kind of come to the way of herbalists and see the importance of nature and of plants? Or is it, is it kind of business as usual? Well, if you compare it to 20 years ago, I think there have been substantial changes, very substantial changes. And um, where you see it most clearly for myself, at least, I 
I have the honor and privilege to um, sometimes be able to connect with medical students um, here at the University of Vermont in Burlington, where I live. There's a medical school and um, being able to speak with sort of fourth year medical students um, who are about to begin their careers as physicians and being able to have started that, you know, 15 years ago, things are are definitely different in terms of the attitudes folks express around the uses of herbal medicine. There also is a little more, um, I would say, sophistication in not kind of lumping all complementary medicine together anymore and being able to say, you know, we've got our somatic practices, we definitely understand yoga and acupuncture and massage therapy, then we've got, you know, um, a range of other things um, from homeopathy to herbal medicine, but they're not all the same, right? Um, so that's one thing that I've noticed. And the other thing is definitely more openness. And it's neat to see, um, and I feel like it's driven by a very natural and beautiful desire that I see in folks to be there for their patients and meet them where they're at, no matter where it is that they might be coming from. And, and that's, you know, there's some genuine curiosity about plants in some folks, but many um, physicians and physicians in training are asking me questions about herbal medicine because they wanna be there for their patients and um, be able to provide them with what they're looking for. And in many cases, they understand that um, the whole thing about, you know, don't go right away for the sledgehammer if you're trying to swat away a mosquito. Let's think about something that is a little gentler first, especially if there's some good evidence, which there's more and more and more and more of for botanical phytopharmacology. Um, so long story short, yes, I think there has been more openness I think it's um, both related to an increased realization that there's a good solid evidence base for herbal medicine in many cases, and also to an increase in sort of humanism in medicine, um, this desire to not just be the physician authority that all must sort of respect and bow down to, but that there's this relational connection between physician and patient and that it would behoove the doctor to take their patient's perspective um, and internalize their worldview in order to be able to improve the health outcomes in the long run. So I definitely feel optimistic about that. And, um, you know, I'll say having a, an ability to talk about it in terms of mechanisms of action of plants and um, having a, a solid grasp of where there is the potential for risk, um, both in the use of botanicals in isolation or in the context of herb drug interactions is really important if you're going to engage in these conversations with um, physicians, uh, just because, you know, they definitely are working with situations that are often outside of the scope of practice of uh, friends or family herbalist or even a clinical herbalist. And um, they deserve our respect, at least in that regard. Yeah, right? you have to meet them where they're at too. Uh, exactly. That means speaking the language. And I wanted to ask you about that. What is your love for science and your knowledge of science kind of driven by that um, need to be able to talk to doctors? Or is it something else? Like, why do you like science? No, uh, it, it way predates that. And uh, my first sort of... I love science and mathematics, I think partly because of their ability to describe patterns and the human minds sometimes, um, I mean, sometimes we see patterns to a fault, right? When they're not really there. And so being able to, to sort of use rational thinking there is important too, but the power of math and science to 
explain things that I would see in the world around me was something that I um, was also really fascinated with from, from the very beginning. And I think it's the same reason I'm fascinated with fairy tales, because, you know, even if you don't fully get it, after you hear a fairy tale, you're left with some kind of insight that you can relate to um, about your experience as a human in the world. So science does that too. And I can remember from when I was little, you know, being so fascinated with the Pythagorean theorem and like how powerful it was at explaining this shape and the right triangle and just blown away by that and just sitting for hours drawing and playing with the Pythagorean theorem. I know that sounds really crazy, but that was one of the things I would do for fun as a kid. And, and that led me to physics and to the study of stars and astrophysics and just the, the explanatory power of understanding these great fusion engines in the sky and, and the nature of gravity and space-time. And again, it, it put me in this place where I felt both really small and part of this huge thing and also like really held by it and validated by it as a living being. And I could only feel that this amazing sense of wonder that comes from sort of gazing outward at the cosmos was also going to be reflected um, once I started turning my gaze more inward to the human physiology. And I have certainly not been disappointed because of this sort of fractal self-similar nature of reality at, at all scales, which is something that, you know, this is not new. This is something traditional medical systems and indigenous cultures have known forever, right? You see the same level of beauty and complexity um, and pattern inside us as you do outside us. And that's why I love science, is the explanatory power and the synthesis power that you get lets you see even more how interconnected and self-referential the world is and how participatory um, it is both at sort of containing, but also at giving and exploding outward in diversity. So the, the scientific reductionism of breaking things into parts and dissecting things, which has always been problematic, I think I'm able to gloss over a little bit because um, at least in, in sort of the modern scientific worldview, there's enough sort of information theory and systems theory um, to counterbalance the 18th, 19th century, early 20th century reductionist perspective of science um, to continue to keep me excited. And this is something we see in, in medicine and in biochemistry too, that, you know, the endless search for the right receptor or the right gene switch isn't as important anymore as being able to catalog how the system reflects on itself, maintains homeodynamic balance, deals with disruption, and at the same time um, contains its own processes, but also generates sort of action and output and what I call gifts to the rest of the world. And to me, these are sort of the two primal impulses in living systems, and systems theory and science describes it well. Um, one is this idea of sort of holding and containing and maintaining internal balance, which is a key part of any living system, right? But the other is this gift giving, sort of outward sharing 
um, you might call it reproduction, but it's bigger than that. Um, it's this idea that my contribution needs to be a part of the world in order to keep the larger system in which I'm embedded in balance, right? Um, and in order to do this, what you see all living systems do is engage in, in, in these amazing gift cycles where we receive, we bind, we grow, we learn, we give back. And science is what has led me to what one might call a more formal or more rigorous way to describe all of these things. And let me just give you an example that sort of takes it back to the astrophysics passions of my youth. Yes. Um, I uh, was, you know, I'm thinking about the stars and I'm thinking about um, the main sequence of stars, and, which is a way to describe how, how stars evolve over billions of years of their life. And I'm thinking about a a star and billions of years of life. And of course, you know, I'm a kid and I'm like, this star has got to be alive, right? Everything is alive. Um, and, and I just couldn't make that connection between my life and, as a human being on this planet and the star's life. It only seemed to me like a one-way street. Star just giving all this energy to our planet um, that is the foundation of my personal life. But what we're seeing now, because folks are looking at the star and are looking at its patterns of behavior, are looking at its homeodynamic balance processes, right? And one of the things scientists are finding out is, and this is something we've known for a while, is that stars have this cycle of activity. Um, we call it maybe the sunspot cycle, um, 11 years or so, right? And, and there's bigger cycles that are you know, a little closer to 90 years and others that are maybe 130 years in this sort of solar activity. And no one really knows why every 11 years or so more sunspots come up and we get more solar flares and more electromagnetic radiation on the planet, which of course affects us, right? But now what they're finding is that um, there's some planets, particularly Venus, Earth, and Jupiter, but to a certain extent also Saturn. Um, Mercury is too tiny and doesn't really seem to affect as much as we see Venus and Earth and Jupiter. Um, Mars is also pretty tiny and also a lot further away than Earth. But when Venus and Earth and Jupiter come together in a line, sort of, with respect to the Sun, you see that cycle happening roughly every 11 years. And as a result, physicists are now able to describe changes in this important sort of transition zone inside the sun where energy from deep within the fusion core of the sun comes to this sort of outer part of the sun that is much more um, hot and electromagnetically active. So when Venus, the Earth, and Jupiter align, their gravity kind of pulls the sun a little bit and alters the way temperature and energy flow inside the sun is behaving in very subtle ways, but enough to trigger this recurrent 11-year sunspot cycle. And now to bring it back to us as humans, what we are also noticing through the lens of science and through very sensitive measurements is that as human beings have been warming the planet over the last 50 to 100 years, 120 years, we're starting to see that the shifts in water are altering both the spin and the orbit of the planet, subtly, but enough to be noticeable to our instruments, which means that this 11-year cycle of alignment between Venus, Earth, and Jupiter is also slightly altering. And my ultimate point for this is, you know, whether you like what human beings are doing or not, our actions today on this planet are literally 
felt by the sun. And so we have this two-way street of interconnection and self-reference. Again, as an example, that our will, our actions, they matter, even though we're super tiny when compared to a star like the sun with you know a 20 plus billion year lifespan. We're certainly affected by it, but our actions also feed back to it in subtle but noticeable ways. That's part of why I really love science. It helps us visualize these things, which can help us bring yet another layer of meaning and tell yet another story. And so the side effect of that is, hey, I can communicate with physicians really well, and that's great. But I love science for its own sake, um, if that kind of long story short or long story long finally gets to the end of your question. Yes. Wow, Guido, that is amazing my perspective on science and on like our own actions and will and how it can affect even the sun is like really expanding right now. So thank you for that. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it, it's interesting that like Jupiter and Venus mm. are part of that. And they're like the two benefics right. in astrology. Huh? Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of, that's really interesting. I, I've never heard that before, but it also like brings this hermetic principle, you know, as above, so below, mm. right. As within, so without mm -hmm. how like the microcosm and the macrocosm are interconnected and mm -hmm. part of it, part of each other, that holographic, you know, fractal universe is, is that's the way it is. <laughs> It certainly is. And I think it's very hard to deny that. And I think, um, you know, we see it, whether we're looking at the way a plant interacts with a cell or with an organ system, um, or whether we're looking at how a human acts within a community, um, like an herbalist as part of, a, you know, urban community, for example, um, or whether we're talking about cultures on the planet, etc. like all of the same stuff, this sort of self reference that includes both an element of being contained and an element of containing multitudes, right? At the same time, that's part of the sun's experience. That's part of our experience. That's part of the experience of every gut bug in our large intestine, as well as every neuron inside our brain. So that's why it gets a little bit weird for me to talk about things like, well, we noticed the neural impulse to move the hand before the conscious thought existed. I'm like, well, your thought of moving the hand might've been contained within that neuron. And, and you're just experiencing this outward gift that that neuron um, first sent. Tongue in cheek, I sometimes say that my morning impulse to get out and go for a run might actually be coming from my feet and their desire to sort of experience uneven terrain of a forest trail. And at the same time from my nose and its desire to smell the leaves and the humus. And, and, and I feel like it's my thought, like Guido, the person with this physical skin wrapping this particular set of organ systems, <laughs> but, but it might just as much be my foot that's starting the whole thing, or it might be the forest itself um, that, enjoys having a human running in it that is calling me. And, and this is both scary because it, it kind of takes control away from you, but at the same time, it's so welcoming and so nurturing and, and it's this endless source of purpose and meaning ultimately for me. And the, the take home that I try to tell folks all the time is that you don't need to understand herbalism in 
and all of the details of all the chemistry and how it works, um, you know, and, and, and understand it to the level of, um, you know, phytopharmacology textbooks in order to be able to participate in this co-creative hermetic fractal tending of the, the sort of conscious ecology fractal that we live in. You just have to start communing with it first with your senses and then with your biochemistry. And then it just gets deeper and it becomes inevitable. So if all it takes is, you know, going out and nibbling on a dandelion leaf here and there, that's great. What you'll find is that it changes your mind. As Isaac, I think you were saying a while ago, not just increased perceived energy levels or less of a drag through our daily life by eating more wild foods, but also a shift in the way we think about things and a shift in the way we approach each other and certainly a shift in the way we approach the wild world. Um, that's our mind changing and it's changing because it's opening itself up to this communion um, as expressed through chemistry, but also as expressed through visual signals and tactile signals of being in the world. Um, when we open ourselves to that, we allow thy will to be done as much as doing what we will. And it makes sense to say that, you know, doing what we will shall be the whole of the law, shall be everything. But only if we also understand that what we will isn't necessarily all coming entirely from inside us. The subtle thoughts that come when the day-to-day -day chatter is stilled, sometimes they're coming from places that aren't your brain. Sometimes they're coming from places that aren't even in your body. And yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I think we have ways to describe that using scientific language now. Um, and, and that's really what, I don't know, I've been really excited about over the last few years. Um, yeah. There are also ways to explain that using more other traditional viewpoints, for instance, like spirits, <laughs> you, you know, got like it. communicating with the spirit of the place or plant spirits is like when, when you really look, look into your mind and, and let those subtle thoughts go on, you can see, yeah, like what, what are your thoughts, quote unquote, and what are other beings? But also, it like that 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 idea that you know I contain multitudes. You know, there's it really like when you really look at like what the self is, it's not an, a unified thing. <laughs> you know, there's so many parts. There are many eyes, as Gurdjieff would say. That's right. I I completely agree. And and thank you for you know reminding us that this is not some kind of new discovery by any means. This is embedded in traditional, relational, indigenous systems of understanding life and understanding medicine. And, and to bring it back to medicine, right? Um, oh, our fascination with sort of whamming the physiology with sledgehammers that has been going on for like 300 years or so, really, probably before that too, if you consider the European tradition, it's new and it's weird. And it's great in the sense that it's allowed us to extend lifespans and deal with hardcore emergency situations that we never would have been able to deal with before and improve sort of public health on a global scale and reduce suffering on a global scale. But we need to keep 
reminding folks that these amazing relational traditional indigenous systems that talk about those same things that science is starting to dip its toes into, but talk about it in terms of plant spirits or spirit of place, right? What are you talking about when you talk about a spirit of place? You're talking about this relational co-creative quality that exists between all of the beings in this place that we as humans somehow can get this weird non-linear, non-verbal understanding of, right? Um, doesn't really fit our human lingo and experience, but how could it? It's totally a different being on a totally different scale with time ranges of life that, you know, we are so small in comparison, but nevertheless, yeah. it can communicate with us and we can communicate back, right? We're not passive bystanders in this business. Um, we create these spirits of place and feed and nourish them as much as our, we are fed and nourished by them. So if you want to learn about it, um, I think one of the best places to start is um, what we might call traditional relational indigenous worldviews and all of the language about magic and spirit and um, that sort of non-scientific way of looking at the world. But I guess I'm just here to say that um, you shouldn't be afraid of doing that because it's, quote, not scientific, if that is ever a concern in your mind, because it actually, in this weird, strange way, is connected to some cutting edge science. It's just expressing it in a really different language that speaks about dreams and speaks about fairies and speaks about spirit rather than talking about cybernetic self-regulatory reference loops that maintain homeodynamism. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And going off of what you're talking about for, for me as a, as a gardener and a permaculturist, um, we have this the, this principle, you know, a diverse system is a resilient system. And Bill Mollison saying everything gardens, right? So I see like wildcrafting, gardening, wild tending as all ways of interacting with like the spirit of place and co-creating with, with, with the, the larger whole, you know, and and uniting in a way that microcosm and the micro the macrocosm but also like you've you've talked about bringing the the wild diversity inside so like you know when we only eat a few species of plants um and we have a really small library mm -hmm. you know it's not a diverse system there aren't a lot of connections between the nodes it's yeah so how do you help people do that like just you know start nibbling on some dandelions is that that good enough well um the produce department is not a bad place to start um although that can be hard for some folks too depending on where they live and what's available um but if we can get to herbs instead of produce i think that that can be even more beneficial just because we're finding that our modern produce department is you know, again, in sort of a fractal way, um, not only have we reduced the overall diversity, but within the plants we're consuming, we're reducing the diversity of phytochemistry um, in each individual plant, part of why people are, are into their heirlooms these days. But um, my, my suggestion, if possible, is to try and find a plant that is growing or alive. And that's part of why with my clients, I'm, I'm, I try not to be too specific about this is the plant you need and it can only be this plant. 
um, I think this has led us into some sort of over um, aggrandizement of sometimes exotic and sometimes endangered plants um, yeah. just because they're, you know, oh, it's the 70 year old ginseng root from this super wild place. And like, of course I want that. Well, you know what? The saponins and Aurelia nudicalis that grows all over the place in your woods might actually be 80% as good for you in this particular place. So that's why like, at least in, in the wild medicine solution, which was one, the first book that I wrote, I, I try to just reduce it to categories of simple, understandable categories, like a bitter plant, a plant that tastes bitter to you, or an aromatic plant, a plant that has a smell, right? And if you're interested in sort of digestion, metabolism, um, liver health, um, things like that, skin health, um, the overall efficient functioning of your eating and processing um, in your body, then bitter is a great flavor to get to know. If you're interested in sort of mood and spirit and um, circulation of energy in your body, then aromatic plants are a really great category of plants to get to know. So think about kind of where you'd want to be there and then try and find one either in your urban setting or in your garden or in your forest um, and, and try and visit it a couple of times before even like consuming it internally. Mm. and try and take that plant's perspective. It's like, what is it up to? Sit there and be observant, like open yourself up first and take some time to figure out what it is that you resonate with, right? What is it that catches your eye? Often folks will have what we might call a revelatory or an, a mini initiation experience where they're like, wow, I just learned about this, or I just heard about this. This is getting me really excited, right? And that's got a lot of power behind it and it's amazing and inspiring for sure, but it often then fizzles out, right? So the next step is to act on that and say, wow, I'm feeling the sense that I got to take a left today on my normal walk. Well, let's go ahead and try that. And then if you find something there, which I almost guarantee you will, taking a moment to honor it and sit with it and say, hey, you plant, I found you on my path after I took that random left today. Who are you and what are you about? And and that might not be the right place. Try it again tomorrow. Eventually, I guarantee you will find what resonates with you and what reawakens that sense of inspiration that first brought you to even thinking about these things. At which point then you have to do work, right? The gift you received was that gift of inspiration, that gift of that first spark. Then you have to sit there and sort of say, okay, well, we're connected now. I accept your gift. And as you know, whenever you accept a gift, you're kind of binding yourself to the gift giver, right? You owe them to a certain extent in the best possible way, of course. So now it's your job to kind of do the work that is necessary, that makes you worthy of that gift, so to speak, right? And so go and just check out that plant over and over again if you resonated with it, see what it's up to, see what it's doing when it's growing. And if you feel like it continues to speak to you, then you might find that you're ready to actually consume it internally. Um, now, if you've done this already and you have experience taking plants already, then you're way ahead of the game. But I still think that the same process is important to take time to understand what it is that nourishes you and awakens that sense of inspiration, awakens that like, hmm, these are interesting thoughts. Maybe they're coming out of left field. Maybe they taste a little different than the normal thoughts that I'm having around work or my day, right? Maybe there's something that's a little more bright or resonant about them, which we might say is 
spirit talking? Um, is spirit of place, is spirit of plant talking to you? And once you find that and can taste it and identify it, then going back and like building. And that's when you can start communing and taking these plants internally. And whether it's an aromatic plant like lemon balm or peppermint or linden, you pick the one that speaks to your heart and spirit. And you'll find that all of them will help adjust your mood in a way that is useful to you. Um, whether it's a bitter plant, if it's dandelion leaf, um, if it's chicory roots, um, if it's burdock roots or yellow dock, all the stuff that's kind of going nuts in our weedy lots nowadays, um, check them out and then eventually think about um, finding a safe place to harvest them and putting some into your body, right? Um, it certainly does help, of course, to have a knowledgeable herbalist with you who can help you confirm positive identification and can help you also know where it is safe to harvest um, versus you know, a site that might be contaminated, um, which includes, unfortunately, urban parking lots where some of our best and most powerful weeds are often found. But I'll tell you, sometimes I feel called to just pull a yellow dock out of a crack in a parking lot between a building and the pavement. And I do that. And I taste a little bit of the root. I don't necessarily make tincture out of it to give to folks, but this idea that not only are plants sort of carrying these signals from our evolutionary context, but they're also adapting to the world that we're all making together today. Yes. And help, they can help train us, yeah. right? how to move forward in a way that, you know, embraces our allies as opposed to one that's just like, we are about the individual and we humans are the best and we're just going to go it alone, right? Which of course is a very, for lack of a better word, we might say like Western, maybe white supremacist mentality um, that has yeah, certainly arrogant. been our culture for a long time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah, it doesn't not turning out well. I think there's so much power in those plants from coming out of the sidewalks and cities. Yeah. Yeah. And if they learn to deal with that, do they have some information for us that we might not be fully aware of? Fully. Right. Right. I think that's wonderful advice too, because you're trusting the living system of yourself mm. to connect with a plant that, that appeals to you on a level that you're not, maybe not ra like, isn't rational, but that's like, that sometimes is so much more important than just like a, like a doctor prescribing something to you mm -hmm. that they don't, there's no connection with. And, and it's like a muscle. Yeah. In the sense that it's trainable and yeah. the more you do it, the more you will feel drawn to do these things that sometimes are hard to explain and sometimes don't feel like they're rationally coming from you, but that's okay. Um, we need more humans to do that. And as a result of, you know, like you said, trusting your living biology and then trusting the biology in which you're embedded, um, then leads you to inevitably want to increase the diversity of experience and exposure, right? And when you do that, what you find is that your opportunities for resonance increase. And when you have resonance, whether it's with a plant or with another person or with a cultural system or with you know, a, a job or a purpose or a passion, your level of effort goes down, right? It's like all of a sudden the person pushing your swing is pushing you at the right time, as opposed to, you know, pushing you when you're already kind of going up on the, um, coming back on the backswing. Um, you know how when you, when you pump your legs on a swing, pumping it at the right time is the way that you get into these broader and broader arcs and cycles. So when you achieve resonance with 
other pieces of the living system in which we're embedded. Your level of effort goes down, your feeling of flow increases, um, your biological efficiency increases, and all of that stuff to me is foundational to wellness. And, you know, I'll just, I'll stop by saying that this is what we talk about in herbal medicine when we talk about tonics. And, you know, whether it's a bitter tonic, um, an aromatic tonic, or some of these vascular tonics and the deeply pigmented berries, it's so different from a drug, from, from what our common perception of what medicine is in culture today. It's, it's resonance enhancers that can work on either end of the spectrum to improve physiologic wellness by enhancing resonance, the experience of flow, and the efficient movement of material and energy through our biological being. That's what tonics do. And as a result, you see all of these issues kind of melt away, but it's not because they're treating those issues by attacking the problem. It's because they come from a place of trust for the system. They focus on supporting that system rather than controlling it. And they do that by maximizing diversity, which allows more opportunities for resonance. That, that diversity has to at least in part be evolutionarily relevant, right? We can't achieve the same thing by um, injecting ourselves with a range of modern plasticizers. We're just not used to that as a physiology um, quite yet. But a little bit of stuff from outside our adaptive ranges, our evolutionarily relevant adaptive ranges can help us move forward in the next turn of the spiral, hopefully in a way that is more in tune with how the rest of the biosphere is moving forward. Um, so that to me is, is the great gift of herbal medicine. It's the concept of the tonic. And I'll say that getting that across to physicians is sort of the, the last or one of the most important pieces for me at this point. Um, and something that I'm still struggling with because it's such a foreign concept, such a foreign concept to modern medicine. Um, and our, even articulating what we mean by herbal tonics is really tough, right? And that's what's led me to consciousness and will and co-creation and homeodynamism and all of the concepts we've been talking about today. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about as an herbalist, you've spoken about dancing with darkness and about recognizing darkness in a client or even a friend. Um, and I was wondering first, how, how do you recognize it? And do you want to speak a little bit about what what that is and how it manifests as disease. Yeah, well, I think that first of all, I wanna be really careful about moralizing in regards to health and disease. I don't know that um, talking about darkness as bad or detrimental, um, or, you know, talking about good mood as always being good right. and, and striving for that all the time. I think that that's a little bit illusory and, and we definitely are sort of this amalgam of both and without one, we wouldn't have the other. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing that I do see is, is a sort of classic way of, or common way of protecting ourselves as living beings, which is to go back to this sense of, I contain rather than I am contained um, and, and trying to create a stronger barrier to maintain that sense of 
containment, right? Which of course, like, what do you do when you wanna protect yourself from something that's barraging you? You tighten up, you close up, and you draw your protection around yourself further. It's very natural and it's totally acceptable and I would say very normal. I think what ends up being tough is that over time, um, if you're doing this for almost its own sake, or you end up, um, I would say, getting power and purpose and meaning from this, it can get you to a point where you're now decreasing the amount of input and diversity and opportunities for resonance because you are protecting yourself, um, but at the same time, reducing the ability to receive gifts, right? And that might be very appropriate for a period in time. Um, I really feel like over the last, oh, certainly eight months or so, um, I went through a period of really needing to stay within a more contained unit of myself and my family. And that's changing over the last, you know, couple of months, um, especially since the days have gotten longer. But it's when that pattern becomes self-sustaining on its own that you um, end up starting to prune off inputs and reduce the richness of your library. And that's when I start to see, at least in clients, but also in myself, um, a normal and normal, a natural and um, beneficial protective response that should be temporary becoming a sort of maladaptive pattern that ends up getting you stuck in a place where you're no longer able to feed yourself and resonate with the world and have feelings of flow and um, meaning injected into you by the world around you. And this is certainly something that people have talked about all the time. It's like, is it better um, to uh, have love and lose it or to never love at all, right? Well, clearly I'll say it's better to have love and lose it, at least to me in my personal experience, than to shut myself off from the experience of love um, completely. Now, in terms of dancing with that, it also is not always possible to be expansive all the time. And open out into the world and be accepting of gifts and accepting of opportunities and accepting of full diversity and everything that the world throws at you all the time. And I do think it's important to get to this place of sort of deconstructing and pruning and individuation and isolation um, every once in a while. And to also experience sometimes the feelings of, um, I don't know, loneliness or lack or absence or or even disease um, so that you can recognize that when you're feeling this impulse, A, it's only temporary or you can choose to make it only temporary um, and, and B, it's something that happens in you but it also happens in other humans around you. It can happen in the culture and to be able to not identify with it 100% because it's when you identify with it 100% that I start to see it having these potentially negative downstream consequences that lead to self-perpetuation of this pattern of isolation and overly pruning all the diverse inputs. And I swear, I think that the experience that we are having um, of 
sort of the great coal machines of the mid 1700s that sort of kicked off the industrial revolution and, and James Watt and um, the sort of pulling out of this dark, rich sort of digested plant material, which is what coal and, and fossil fuels are, right? Out of the earth and and burning it in fire and and sort of getting this amazing power from it is also in a way that we maybe haven't fully acknowledged traumatic for us. And we're not really taking the time to explore that. And as a result, we're getting in this pattern as a human culture or as Western human culture, the way it's expressed today of, of continuing to prune and continuing to isolate and continuing to build walls. And, and that's what we might call dis-ease. It's certainly dis-resonance and as a result, dis-efficient in the long run and it also harms our resilience and sustainability as we're starting to see further and further and further. But unless we take the time to sort of mindfully sit in what we might call darkness or this feeling of loneliness and isolation and, and separation and experience it for what it is and understand that it's a natural part of life, then it will have control over us, I guess is what I'm saying, um, in ways that might be unpredictable and potentially you know, harmful to us and to others in the sense that that diversity and that ability to resonate and flow and create and find meaning and purpose and wellness, it'll just be harder to achieve. Yeah, I love what you said. And um, I guess a follow up question is, as an herbalist, we're often very like feeling and empathetic with our clients. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for folks who may be like, take on some of the pain or suffering that their clients are feeling and they don't just like leave it at the clinic, you know? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, I don't know that it's possible to leave it at the clinic. Um, no matter what we might try and say to ourselves about that. I think one of the things that I've always so appreciated about clinical practice is that it, it does take, me out of my individual self and allows me to experience that empathy with another human. Yeah. Um, and, and having the language of plants as a common language to me is very comfortable. Um, and I think to folks I work with is, is comfortable sometimes too, most of the times. Uh, I, I think that it is important to be able to find a way to process through the spiritual intensity that comes from working with others. And I don't know that I'm an expert at that, to be frank. Um, it, it does affect me deeply and sometimes gets overwhelming in ways that aren't even sort of consciously tangible. Um, and and y'all might have experienced this too. You know, it's like, ah, my stress, stress threshold all of a sudden got way lower and I don't really understand why. Um, if you take the time to to kind of move through what those threads are that might be flowing through you, you might see that the, the intense experience that you um, and your client shared in clinic might be part of the reason why you're feeling a little more vulnerable or a little more um, irritable or, or whatever it is might be affecting your mood or your, or your perception of reality at that time. So I guess 
because I think it's impossible not to carry some of that with you, um, one thing that I would say as advice is to expect that it's going to come with you and mm -hmm. not wait maybe until it starts pushing you around in, in sort of subconscious or not fully conscious ways, but to either with yourself or if you have a trusted partner who will maintain confidentiality, be able to um, share that out a little bit in a way that seems um in a way that seems appropriate and safe. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, because they're always there for me in my garden and I'm lucky to have a garden, mm -hmm. being able to process through and share it with plants. And so I get into conversations with plants about how I feel, how my clients feel, how the relationship I have with clients is impacting me. And, you know, as like the best, best friends would, plants aren't going to try and fix that for me, though sometimes they have some interesting ideas. Um, <laughs> but at the very least, they're always there to listen. And the sharing out again of that gift and, and gift always sounds like it's a good thing, but it's not necessarily, it has no morality attached to it. It's simply this idea that you contain so much that you need to be able to share it out. And having that sort of relational process with something that's outside of you, I guess that that's what my piece of advice would be. And, and if it's just a plant or a pet um, or even yourself, mm -hmm. expecting that that's gonna happen, that you're going to be affected by the work you do as an herbalist and acknowledging it and exploring that darkness, if that's part of what came with it, um, is important. Otherwise it's going to end up coming around and, and controlling you in ways that you're not fully aware of. Um, and it might still, but at least if you're aware, you can say, okay, these are the threads that are moving through my life now and that's okay. They will change in the future. Um, and I can um, do these other things too, to bring in other threads or other pieces that might encourage resonance in a different direction. Again, trusting that the living system with the right exposure right, to evolutionary, evolutionarily relevant signals will balance itself out because that's what it wants to do. Yeah. So it's about processing it, moving through it, using your support network to help yes. you not internalize it. Thank you. That's a, a much more succinct and direct way of putting it. And you're absolutely I'm just summarizing right. your words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to contrast it with, you know, conventional medical training, which says never identify with your client. Yeah. Um, never say like, oh, I get what that's like. Um, never say, um, you know, just leave it all at the clinic, like you said. Yeah. I, I mean, that's frankly impossible to do, impossible. Um, and ends up biting you in the butt in ways that sometimes you don't expect. For sure. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for all of your fabulous insights today. I, we're about out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. So is there any other um, final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Or how people can reach you? You have well, a, lot of, too, but... yeah, a lot of projects going on. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm notoriously bad at sort of putting easy ways um, out into the internet to get a hold of me. But um, right now I am working with a tea company called Traditional Medicinals, as well as an extract company called Urban Moonshine, um, which are actually part of the same um, 
overall umbrella company of traditional medicinals. And so if you want to get a hold of me, that might be the easiest way at this point in time. I also am um, adjunct faculty and um, work with this herb school called the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, which is um, here in central Vermont. And you can get a hold of me through there as well. Um, but in terms of final thoughts, um, I would say continuing this conversation, you know, um, both through the work you all are doing, but also if you're listening to this or if you feel called to plants in any way, or if you've been working with plants for years, trying to turn others on to that same experience you've had and help them work through from that moment of initiation, that aha moment where you're like, wow, this is good stuff, to actually taking the time to honor that experience by nurturing it and feeding it and growing that seed into something that will eventually mature. If you can do that, then I think we're setting our culture on a path that will hopefully help us acknowledge some of our past trauma, some of the sort of difficult decisions we've made in terms of our relationship to each other and to the planet. Um, and as a, as a relentless optimist, I only think that um, improvement and greater resonance um, and greater wellness will result. Absolutely. So it seems like herbalists have a role to play in positively influencing a cultural shift, huh? I think they have us, I think we have a central role to play and this ability to unite biosphere, um, this ability to unite science and spirit and story and chemistry is just unique, you all. It's so yeah. incredibly unique in the world today. And the lessons it teaches about tonification, about acceptance, about diversity are just the lessons that our culture needs as we stand on this you know, threshold of everything from artificial intelligence to going to Mars. I mean, come on, y'all. This stuff is amazing and incredible. But to think we can do it without our ancestors and by ancestors i mean the plants the spirits the tendrils of the ecology that brought us to where we are today it's ludicrous to think that we could do it without them so right now as we're on this threshold of this amazing sort of gift giving right that the planet is about to do by taking elements from its biosphere and spreading it across the solar system and who knows where else now that we stand at the threshold of this amazing gift-giving opportunity, it's all the more important to also maintain our sense of being contained, right? By this larger process. And that's the lesson that herbalism brings. And, and that's the lesson that I hope we all can really take to heart. Mm. I yeah. love that. And I love the work that you're doing. And I thank you so much for just being such a positive and influential person in so many herbalists world. So thank you so much, Guido. Well, I see. Thanks for the great words and, and kind thoughts. And Isaac, same to you. And I wish we could talk a little more about hermeticism and um, yeah. the, occult, the occult traditions, but maybe another day. Let's do that sometime. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Guido. Bye. Bye. Bye.